Now you'll notice in your Bibles that this psalm begins with a title, A Song of Ascents. Psalm 130 is a collection of 15 psalms that share this title. Beginning with Psalm 120 and going all the way to Psalm 134, these 15 psalms served as a form or a type of a hymnal for the Jewish people as they would travel to the city of Jerusalem three times each year for the annual feast that they were required to attend. We see this found in Exodus chapter 23, verses 14 to 29, where we are told that God commanded the people of Israel to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also known as Passover, the Feast of the Harvest, which was known as Pentecost, and the Feast of Ingathering, which is also known as Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And the word for ascent means to go up. So it would make sense that because the city of Jerusalem was on a hill, that the people would have to walk up there in order to get there. And because the city was on a hill, it was visible from a distance, and it provided an opportunity for reflection as the people would prepare their hearts for worship and to focus on all of the things that God had done for them. In addition to being called a song of ascent, Psalm 130 is also one of what is known as the penitential psalms. Now, while this is not specifically categorized in the Bible this way, the penitential psalms have been classified as such throughout church history because of their content. Traditionally, there are seven of these psalms. Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, the one we're looking at today, and 143. And the reason why they're called penitential psalms is that each one of them represents the author's deep sorrow over sin and the need for forgiveness. Psalm 51, written by David after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, is perhaps the most famous of the seven, but each of the other six serve as a blueprint for the repentant sinner. So with that as our backdrop, let us look at the text and we begin with verse 1. We're told, Out of the depths... I have cried to you, O Lord. The psalmist begins by speaking of a dark place when he says, out of the depths. And while we're not specifically told as to what is the reason, it would appear from verses that follow that he is recalling or recalling times or is presently speaking of the pain and the consequences of sin that have afflicted him. We know that it's not a pleasant experience yet in which all of us are no doubt familiar with or will be during the course of our lives. The depths here speak to the idea of drowning, where you are sinking to the bottom and unable to get a firm footing to find a place of safety. I think of a lot of the movies that I used to watch as a kid, and I remember the Tarzan movies used to be on as a kid, and inevitably there would always be somebody in the movie that would be going through the jungle and they would fall into quicksand. And then quicksand would slowly take them under. And if there was nobody there to help them, to throw them a lifeline or a stick or something like that, or even for some of the modern day, the Indiana Jones movies, where they would go into quicksand and they would slowly sink to the bottom and it was almost as they were drowning. And there was nothing that they could do to help themselves. And then they would quickly go under and you wouldn't see them anymore. I think that's the idea of what we're talking about here, the depths. Is it just being drowning and getting to the point where there's nothing that we can do. Sinking to the bottom. And this is really what the terrible reality of sin is and what it does to us. 
For those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we understand that sin breaks our fellowship with God and from his blessings. And for the believer, it's far worse. It's eternal death. Eternal death sentence, just as we see in Romans 6.23, where it tells us, for the wages of sin is death. But when we think of the Psalms and the fact that they were songs that were to be sung in worship, and they also served as prayers, we may think of that starting off by saying, out of the depths is not exactly the place that you would want to begin. Not very awe-inspiring. But in reality, it is just the right place that we need to begin in order for us to understand the true nature of God's redemptive work. We must know the bad place from which we start. And the road to salvation often begins with the person recognizing the horrible plight they are in because of their sin against a holy and righteous God. As verse 1 continues, we quickly see that the psalmist has chosen to do what is not only the right thing for him to do, but the only thing for him to do. He cries out to the Lord. He's in a desperate situation, and he knows that his only recourse is a plea to God. Notice a few things, though, that we see from this cry. One, the actions of the psalmist crying to the Lord appear to be something that he has done in the past and continuing to do in the present. To cry out also speaks of desperation. Secondly, the psalmist is not looking for his rescue to come from other people. Or what we commonly see in our day and age, he's not looking for any type of self-help remedy. He's not going to Barnes and Nobles and going to the self-help section and finding out what it is that he needs to do. No, what he does is he looks to the right place. He looks to the Lord. As one of the earliest songs of ascent, Psalm 121, we read earlier, verse 1 and 2 says, I will raise my eyes to the mountains. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and earth. So he's in a proper place with a proper direction. Another thing to see here is that there's a pattern that develops throughout the entire psalm. The psalmist alternates between two names of God, Yahweh and Adonai. And this can be seen in our Bibles when we look at the way the word Lord is written. When the word Lord is all capitalized, this is the translated version of Yahweh which we know is the covenant name of God that was given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And it speaks to the fact that God is faithful to his promises. When only the L in Lord is capitalized, that is the name Adonai, which speaks of his lordship over every area of life and his ability to keep the promises that he makes. So we'll see that throughout the psalm eight times the word Lord is used alternating between the two. Five times it would be translated as Yahweh, and three times as Adonai. So the psalmist goes back and forth in between. In verse 2, he continues by saying, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. He continues his plea. A desperate man is not concerned with proper protocol. He is simply longing to be heard to find an answer to the problem that he is facing. Just as we see the cries of men in the New Testament, such as the last message I preached from here when we talked about the nobleman with the sixth son in John chapter 4, or blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, the proper response of a person in great need is to put aside their pride and to come to the Lord in humility. 
We see also here that the psalmist uses anthropomorphic language by speaking of the Lord having ears so that he may hear him. We understand that the Lord is a spirit and does not have physical ears, so to use this word to attribute human characteristics to God is just a helpful way for us to try to comprehend what is otherwise unknowable. We see in these two verses that his cry has real feeling behind it. Its own depth, if you will. It's not a superficial confession that makes light of sin as we so often do. I don't have to tell anybody in this room or anyone that's listening that modern Christianity tends to be shallow in practice. There's a whole lot of talk about love and compassion and very little talk about sin and holiness. Sin is not understood to be what it is, a capital offense against the holy God. Rather, sin is spoken of as a mistake and not taken seriously. Again, we see this sometimes in the way that we just change words in our language. Adultery is not called adultery anymore. It's, it's having an affair. Let's lessen the language in order to lessen the impact and the gravity of sin. We see that happening all the time. And that's what goes on. Not taken seriously. In fact, today it can be considered a badge of honor to talk about sin in a way that either glorifies it. Unbelievers do this all the time. They glorify their sin. Or sometimes it's seen as the fact that someone will exalt the sinner because they're brave enough to admit their sin or their failures, as they'd call it, even when there is no intention to change. Just the simple fact that you can admit and say, oh, I know that I do this, and we're supposed to laud and celebrate the fact that you're admitting it, but yet at the same time, there is no intention of doing anything about it. Just the simple speaking of it is supposed to be enough to get somebody praise. This psalmist here is not such a man. Clearly from these eight verses, you can see that he reveres the Lord and he has a strong doctrinal foundation. As he or anyone else that would be heading to Jerusalem in preparation for the feasts, if they were singing this psalm, there might be a call to remembrance of the unfortunate history of the Jewish people and their sin against God. They as a people would have no right or ability to be able to go to worship if it had not been for the gracious nature of Yahweh. And just as we do here on the first Sunday of the month, typically, when we celebrate the Lord's table, we have a time of reflection, and Mark will lead us in song. We see the same way that this psalm would be properly used by the people in order to prepare their hearts for the Lord's feasts. Now, by, by way of application, I think there are a couple of things that we can see here that should bring encouragement to the believer. First thing is, it's often been said that when we reach the depths, the valleys of life, or rock bottom, so to speak, whether because, because of the weight of our sin, or perhaps some other affliction that has come upon us, the only place to go is up. Once you've hit the bottom, there's no other place to go. We can only go up. And unfortunately, for many of us, we need to reach this point in order for us to call upon the Lord. But when we do, we can be assured that God hears our cry. Confessing and repenting and coming forth and bringing these things to the Lord is so essential for us. And it is the beginning of taking those upward climbs and those upward steps. When I look at Psalm 32... You don't have to turn there, but one of the other penitential psalms, when David is speaking in Psalm 32, 
In verses 3 and 4, he says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. You see, when David in his sin was quiet about it and not confessing it and trying to avoid it or trying to suppress it, that he was feeling real physical effects from that, in addition to just his soul probably being tormented. It is only when he started to confess and he started to speak and he didn't hide it anymore when all of a sudden he was on the road and the path to recovery. We know that for him in many instances, and specifically in the instance with Bathsheba, required the prophet Nathan coming. And the Lord was gracious enough to send Nathan to him in order to reveal his sin. But when David was confronted, he didn't deny it. He didn't deny it at that point. He fully admitted it, and he knew that he had sinned against the Lord. Even though his sin was done against individuals, he knew ultimately his sin was against the Lord. But as he did this, and as he began to confess, he was restored. And yes, we sometimes have to deal with the consequences of the sin of our lives. We're not necessarily immune to that. But he knew, and David would have to you know, experience those consequences for the rest of his life. But he was restored to the relationship with the Lord. And that's where it begins. It begins with us doing that. So we're not to be silent. And secondly, some people ask the question, I think it's quite frequent, it's common. People ask, well, can I do anything to please the Lord? Yes, we can. We can please the Lord. God is delighted when we call upon Him. And we rely upon His strength and not our own perceived abilities. It brings Him glory. Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call on Him in truth. God takes delight in His people coming to Him. When we're relying upon His strength, not our own strength, which we have none to begin with anyway. He wants us to come to Him and He delights that because it brings Him glory. And that is our ultimate purpose, is bringing Him glory. As we continue in verse 3, we see additional evidence of the psalmist's strong theology. He says, If you, Lord, should mock iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now this is a rhetorical question, but if we were to answer it, the answer would be clearly, no one would be able to stand. And we know that this is confirmed over and over again in Scripture. A couple examples just for us would be Paul writing in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. David in Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is any that understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. We understand that Paul also quotes this in Romans as well. So we know that there is no one that can stand against the judgment of God. Of course... If you would ask this question to most people, including, sad to say, a lot of professing Christians, they would answer that they're pretty good people and that God should let them into heaven. And we know what all the responses are. I'm nice to people. I take care of my family. And the most famous response, I've never killed anybody. And if you want to add sugar on the top, I'm not Hitler. But when we understand that God's standard is perfection and none of us can achieve it, we're in trouble. That's why I love Ray Comfort's method of evangelism, where he asks people whether or not they're a good person. And then he asks them if they're willing to take a test. And then he presents to them and goes through several of the Ten Commandments. Have you ever told a lie? Well, if you have, and then most people would say yes, well, what does that make you? It makes you a liar. Have you ever stolen anything, regardless of the value? 
Well, yes. Well, what does that make you? That makes you a thief. Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain or in a flippant manner? Yes. What does that make you? It makes you a blasphemer. So just by the first, just by using three commandments there, you are a lying thief and a blasphemer. So the idea that we can think of ourselves being good people is quickly put to rest. And the answer is no. But as he does this, he doesn't just leave people there. As he goes to prove and to understand people to understand that they're not good people, it opens the door to the gospel. And that is the wonderful and glorious thing about it. I actually have a lot of the little Are You a Good Person tracks that I've had over the years, and I've given them out to a lot of people. I actually have them, quite a few of them at my job now at the uh, gateway, at the desk, the front desk, the security desk. I have a bunch there, and they go over very well. A lot of people, especially young people, they want to take them. I think they're attracted to the little small booklet and says, are you a good person? I think people are interested to see what it's going to be in there. And you know, a lot of people, when they start reading, they get a little nervous. But I think I was saying earlier, I said, to a man, I've never had anyone that's come back and say, with the exception of one person, actually, I did. I had one person over the years, and all the years that I've given these things out or used that form of evangelism, I've only had one person that said that they were a good person and they had done none of the things that were in the commandments. Um, there was nothing I could do with that person. I, I stopped. Um, you know, at that point, there was, there was no point in continuing that conversation. I tried, but I, I think it was just uh, falling on deaf ears. But for everybody else, when people look at it and people are honest with themselves, they recognize that, no, they are not by God's standard. Human standard's a little bit different. A lot of people can argue that, but not by God's standard. Uh, Pastor Steve Cole points out also that verse 3 raises another question that needs to be asked. Does God keep a record of all our wrongs? And the answer is yes. Places like Psalm 98, Jeremiah 2.22, Hosea 7.2, among others, affirm this. According to Matthew 12.36, this happens even down to the word level. Jesus speaking says, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. So even the very words that we speak. And this leaves a sinner in a world of trouble. And to what we see in verse 1, why they would be in the depths, even if they're not aware of it. But verse 4 is the answer to the problem. But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. Such sweet words to hear. Forgiveness is possible and it comes from the Lord. Our God is one who is ready and willing to forgive. In Nehemiah 9.17, in speaking of the sins committed by the nation of Israel after they had left Egypt, we're told in the second half of the verse, but you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. I think of Elder Joe has been preaching through the book of Ephesians, and when he was in chapter 2, we see early on in chapter 2, particularly verses 1 to 3, the indictment upon us that we're dead in our sins and trespasses, and that we're children of wrath. And then you get to wonderful verse 4 of chapter 2, but God, but God. And just like that, we see that here, but God, there is forgiveness with him. Now, it's one thing to be able to do something, but quite another to actually be able to do it. I may be willing to do a lot of things, but I'm not always capable. You can ask my wife. A lot of things that I can't do. We have limitations. God, however, is not only willing to do so, but he is able to do so. And that is an amazing thing to hold on to. But how is it that he's able to do so? 
Does he just snap his proverbial fingers and it's done? Forgiveness happens that way? Of course not. Forgiveness is not cheap. It is extremely costly. And for God, that price was his very own son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When Jesus went to the cross, he took upon himself the sins of those who would believe, and he was punished for them as if he had been the one who had committed the sin. For God to be just, he could not just permanently overlook sin and pretend as though it didn't exist without a sufficient payment. The problem is, is that payment could not come from us. It had to come from someone who was qualified. And that is why it was necessary for Jesus to be the one to do so. He was the perfect sinless substitute that could serve as the propitiation, as Pastor George always likes to say, wrath appeaser for God. He was the only one that could do it. And he did it perfectly. And for us to come to this place of forgiveness, we need to understand that we need to repent of our sins and by grace through faith believe in who Jesus is and what he did for us. And with this comes a new birth. And we're brought into a new relationship with God. And the sins that we have committed are no longer held against us. As Jeremiah 31, 34, Hebrews 10, 17 tells us. They are expunged. They are gone. So that record that we have, that we talked about before, that record that God has, that record is no longer held against us. Not held against us at all. We have a clean slate. Verse 4 continues and concludes with saying, But the proper response to forgiveness is that the Lord may be feared. And the fear spoken of here is not the fear of judgment. That's been taken care of for us. It's not the fear that an unbeliever has, but rather a fear that reveres the Lord holding him in high regard. This is a fear is one that promotes a desire to obey his word and to cultivate the spiritual disciplines in one's life in order to deepen our walk with him. That's what this fear produces in us. And it's a healthy and it's a good fear. Before we continue, though, I want to address two points. The first is, we talked about forgiveness in light of Jesus and the cross. But how exactly was forgiveness possible for the Old Testament saint? Or specifically in the case of the psalmist, when Jesus had not yet come into the world, when this psalm was written? And the quick answer to this is that forgiveness was made possible in the same way, through repentance and faith. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for the Old Testament saints as well as the New because it had been planned by God in eternity past and it was going to happen. It was set in stone, if you would. The animal sacrifices that were conducted during the Old Testament were just a foreshadowing to what Christ would later do once and for all. Places like Galatians 3 and Romans 4 make it clear that salvation always came about through faith and not through the law. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, the first book of the Bible, and we see this reality when it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the Old Testament saints were responsible for the revelation that they had at the time. And as that revelation becomes progressive over time and people understanding and knowing new things... That's what they're responsible for. But at the end of the day, faith was still the linchpin that held everything together. The second thing I want to talk about and make mention of is the fact that 
is that while it is not explicit as it is in the other penitential psalms, this psalm speaks to the necessity of repentance. And what do we mean when we talk about repentance? It's a word that we use frequently and it's essential to the Christian faith. Certainly essential to salvation. But first I'll say what it's not. And I love the way Kevin DeYoung points, uh, puts it when he says that repentance is not just simply saying you're sorry over and over again. I think a lot of people think that that's what repentance is. I'm just going to continuously say sorry, sorry, sorry over and over again. You think about in your relationships that you might have in your family, a husband and wife, or and just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but nothing is ever done. There's nothing ever that's changed, and you just continue on with the same things you do over and over again, and as if sorry is that magic word that's going to make everything better. That's not what repentance is. Yes, there's obviously a sorrow that's going to exist in regards, but repentance really, the biblical definition of repentance is actually literally to change one's mind. And specifically, this means in regard to your thinking about God, and also your thinking about sin. It's coming in agreement with God and realizing, recognizing what your sin is. Not minimizing it in any kind of way, realizing what it is, that it is a holy offense to God. And inevitably, this change of mind will lead to a change in action. It can't just stop with a change of mind. That's where it needs to begin, but it goes on from there to change of action. I can be walking down the street, heading in a direction, and I realize if I'm going to the wrong destination, wrong direction, I can just simply continue on my way, and that doesn't do me any good. What I need to do is I need to turn around and to go in the right direction. So I can say, oh, well, yep, I'm heading to Main Street, and I walk that way. Well, that's not the way to Main Street. I'm acknowledging that it is, but I didn't do anything about it. I need to actually physically turn around and walk in the opposite direction in order to get to Main Street. And that's what repentance does. And the way that I, I think that we see it here is that in this psalm is that what we see through the cries of the psalmist that he has, particularly we saw in the verse, early verses, it speaks really to an expression of godly sorrow that he has. Second Corinthians 7.10, we're told, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And there's a difference between the two. I think here we see the entirety of the psalm speaks to the fact that the author has godly sorrow because his subsequent actions in the rest of the psalm will speak to this. And there is a clear difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Probably no better example we see that than the differences between Peter and Judas. When Peter sinned against the Lord by denying him three times, he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly and he was in deep, deep sorrow, almost thinking that he probably, that his entire ministry and that he was, there was no future for him and there was nothing that, that could happen. And he was really, really, you could see, upset. And you can see the way that he handles that when the Lord restores him as well, is that he accepted the correction. He accepted everything that came with it. And that he was restored and then ultimately mightily used by the Lord. Whereas Judas, on the other hand, his sorrow was different. His sorrow was a worldly sorrow because, how do we know? Because look at his actions. He went out and he hung himself. He was upset that perhaps the things that he thought were going to happen by him betraying Jesus didn't turn out the way he wanted them to turn out. He didn't have a sorrow because of what he had done. He had sorrow because of the consequences that he was feeling and he almost as if he got caught. And his response to it was completely the opposite. So we see there's a clear difference in, de- in, in between the two. We want to have a godly sorrow and understanding what our sin does, but then moving forward in the direction that we need to do. As we continue in verses 5 and 6, we read, 
I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed more than the watchman for the morning. The psalmist has been forgiven, but that doesn't mean it's time for him to sit back and relax. He's got to be alert. We're told three times that he's waiting upon the Lord, alternating once again between the name Yahweh and Adonai. And what is he waiting for? Well, perhaps one of the things he's waiting for is to have the intimacy with the Lord that he had prior to his sin. Or maybe he's just looking to see how the Lord's going to guide him in the days ahead. In the Bible, waiting on the Lord is connected to hope and trust. And the hope is based on the promises that are found in his word. And we're to look forward to these promises with eager anticipation. A.W. Tozer says that hope is really the direction taken by the whole Bible. It's the heartbeat of the Bible. And I think that's a good quote that speaks so truly. But waiting on the Lord certainly involves patience, which trusts God's going to provide everything we need when he deems fit in his time frame and table. But it also means that we are to be active in pursuing the activities that we know we should be doing. James 4.17 tells us, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And the repeated analogy of the watchman here is a perfect example. In ancient times, a city could have a watchman at night, perhaps several, that would stand guard to protect the city to alert of possible danger. This was an important job, and it required the person to be responsible. If you fell asleep, you could put the entire city at risk of some type of attack. And in some cases, this would actually carry the death penalty for neglect of duty. The whole time, the watchman would be waiting for the morning light to come. And there was no doubt that the light was going to come, because it always does. But there was nothing that could be done by the guards to make it come any sooner. They simply had to wait, all the while maintaining a posture of readiness. And I shared a story that when I was in the military, I remember being at Fort Bragg down in North Carolina, and we stayed in training in these old army barracks that had been built prior to World War II, and they were old wooden barracks. And you would have a fire watch every night. So when we went, whenever the lights out were until the time that we woke up in the morning, you'd have each hour there would be one person that would be assigned to stay awake, walking around with a flashlight to make sure that, you know, God forbid there was any type of lightning that would come or, you know, anything where a type of fire could happen, those buildings would go up in a heartbeat. So your job is to warn and to look out and to watch and whatnot. And you just remember sometimes being at night and it was just so dark and you just could not wait for that hour to be up. You couldn't wait till that next person that you could wake up so that you could go back to bed, but you had to be alert. You had to be alert because if you fell asleep, you really put everybody, and subsequently what ended up happening, if I fell asleep, if I had the two to three o'clock watch and I fell asleep, well, the three o'clock guy wasn't gonna get up on his own. So that would mean the entire night would be lost. So again, it was one of those things where you're just waiting and those could be the longest hours, the longest hours. You just waited, but you had to be alert. And you had to be alert to make sure that you were doing what you were responsible doing. And your job was to protect the people that you served with. And that's kind of the same way here with the watchman does. And I love this. There's also another story that involves slaves in the British, British West Indies in 1830. When, the, when England, before we had, actually passed the uh, Slavery Abolition Act in 1830. That many of the slaves that were in the British West Indies had been introduced to the gospel and they had become believers. They were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the night before the act was to take effect, I believe it was July 31st into August 1st, many of these slaves gathered together in churches, prayer groups, and they were on the mountaintops waiting for the sun to rise. 
And they made the most of their time praying and giving thanks to the Lord, waiting, knowing that when the sun rose to that new day that they were going to be set free. And here they were doing that. And I thought that was such a, an awesome story to hear in regards to this, that they took the most of their time, most of opportunity of their time. But by way of application, I think when we think of our own lives, how often do we make the most of the opportunities that we have while we're waiting? And we have lots of opportunities to wait in the world that we live in. But we don't like to wait. But yet we should make the most. For those of us who have trouble sleeping at night, what is one of the first things that people often do? Let's check our phones. Counting the hours and minutes to the morning light, but will we not be better served perhaps spending time in prayer? Perhaps meditating on some aspect of God's truth. It's funny, after I shared that during the morning message, Brother Lou Cook came up and he said, he goes, hey, it's funny you said that. He goes, I just got a message from one of the brothers in the Gideons that was up last night at three in the morning and he was praying about something specific and he shared it with him. He says, here he was, he took, most, he took advantage of the opportunity that he had. This past Friday night, Pastor George shared with the youth ministry and it's so important, again, when we talk about directing towards the youth, I mean, for all of us, but especially for the youth where this culture is just so trying to grab us and pull us away. He talked about Ephesians 5.16, about redeeming your time for the days are evil. I think it's so important that we do that. That's for everybody, not alone less the youth, but all of us to do that. I've been convicted uh, recently. Last week I took one of the books from the back, the little bulletins that, that come from uh, one of the uh, ministries down in Florida. And they have all the old Puritans and whatnot, little articles they have, and some with Charles Spurgeon. And it was on meditation. And I was convicted on that. And I've said to myself, like, how often do I just intake so much information that I'll read so many different things, you know, so many different books that I've read or even sometimes in Bible reading plans. And, and yet, do I always spend the time that I need to to actually maybe take a step back and meditate on what I'm reading? And you wonder sometimes why we don't retain the information that we do. Sometimes we take in too much information. Certainly with the technology and the phones we have, we're taking in way too much information. We can't handle everything. But even of the good things, even that we do when we're in Bible reading and whatnot, perhaps sometimes it'd be better off, and I think I'm convicted of this, to take a step back a little bit, maybe not reading as consuming as much, but maybe spending more time in the things that I am reading and thinking about and to meditate upon that truth. And actively, and the meditation we're talking about here is not the worldly form of meditation where we just empty our minds or anything like that. No, biblical meditation is being actively engaged with your mind upon the truth. And I found myself doing that this week with this Psalm 130, and it was just amazing how God really speaks to you through his word. So there's just a couple of things by way of application for us. Now the final two verses of the Psalm say, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is love and kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The psalmist closes by switching the attention from a personal level to a corporate level, mentioning the nation of Israel. And this can be seen as an evangelistic appeal. He understands personally the forgiveness and power of the Lord, so his desire is to communicate this to his countrymen by reminding them of the truths that, that we were all familiar with. And this is very similar to our evangelism. That which we have been blessed to experience is what we seek to communicate to others. And here the psalmist uses the word Yahweh twice, indicating the special covenant relationship with God had with Israel. And it's also telling that he uses the word loving kindness, sometimes translated steadfast love or even translated mercy. And in the Hebrew, it's often used in the Old Testament to express God's faithful love and action that was expressed towards Israel. 
And God's loving kindness is essential to his character and is most directed to those who are his own. And the beauty of this word is that this is the attribute that a sinner makes his plea to and he can be assured that God will respond. Psalm 119, 149 tells us, Hear my voice according to your loving kindness. Revive me, O Lord, according to your ordinances. In addition to the loving kindness of the Lord, there was also abundant redemption. Israel was familiar with redemption from their past. They had been slaves in Egypt where they were redeemed by the Lord and they were set free to inhabit a land that was promised to them. Throughout their history, God had rescued them time and time again from their enemies. And it was always of God's doing, not of their own. But the greatest need that Israel had and the greatest need that we have is that we needed to be redeemed from our sins. And the psalmist concludes by saying that the Lord would redeem Israel from his iniquities. And when he says this, he did not have the benefit of knowing what we do this side of the cross, as we mentioned before. But what he did have was a sure hope built upon God's word and the knowledge of God's devotion to his people. How much more are we blessed than as New Testament Christians knowing that how the redemption was applied through the work of Christ? Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now as we close today, there is an additional point that I would like to make. And it involves someone who may think to themselves, I hear this message about how God is a forgiving God, but my sins are too great for God to forgive. If you only knew the things that I've done, then you understand that there is no hope for me. And this is not an uncommon response. Sometimes it's said in a prideful way that's just pretending to be humble because they don't want to change and they just want to be left alone. I know people will say that all the time. Oh, if I went to that church, the four walls would fall down. But when you want to continue a conversation, there's no interest in continuing a conversation. But in other cases, it is a legitimate response. Sin has a powerful effect on mankind. Sin makes a lot of promises, a lot of false promises, and it never shows the price tag. And that price tag is costly and it can be crippling to an individual. The weight of guilt and shame of sin can lead a person into despair. Added to that is the ever-present enemy, Satan, that is more than willing to level accusations our way. And sometimes it can also be erroneous teaching that leads a person to believe that their sin can't be forgiven. But make no mistake about it. As we said before, God is willing and able to forgive sin for those who come to him in faith. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no one who could read the Bible from beginning to end, cover to cover, that could ever come away with the idea that God doesn't forgive sin because there are just too many accounts of all different types of sin being forgiven. We must learn to separate fact from fiction in our theology and to rest on truth as opposed to our feelings. And by way of application, again, I want to say to those who are believers, be sure that we keep short accounts with the Lord. Repent quickly of sin. Don't allow it to accumulate as so to damage your relationship with the Lord. And we don't want it to hurt our testimony to others. You know, most of us are probably familiar that there was a uh, 
been in the news recently, and, and quite frankly, uh, more than we would like, of many prominent Christian people who have fallen into great sin. Um, and when we hear of those things, we think of, oh, oh, it just pains, our, pains us. Pains us for them, for their families, for the, for the victims, perhaps, that, that, that might have been involved. But we also think of, you know, the damage that it does to the professing church of Jesus Christ. And the world is looking for people. They're looking for us to trip up. They're looking for us to fall. And when you have someone that's prominent, that, that's, you know, that, that is well-known, and when they do it, it's, it makes it even worse. I think we need to be on guard against that to make sure that we're, not, we're keeping very, very short accounts with the Lord. And then if that requires you know, coming to the Lord and just confessing our known sins, asking, us, asking Him to find hidden faults that we have that we might not be aware of, that's the beauty of a local church, that sometimes when you're in relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ, that perhaps they might see something in you that you're not aware of. So all of those different things that we need to do, keeping short accounts, and I think for us as believers we need to do that. And for those who have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, I say let this be the day that you do so. While even the worst of sinners can be forgiven, there is an expiration date to that, and that comes at the day of your death. Hebrews 9.27 And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes the judgment. There is no opportunity for repentance after death. Some people say, I'll wait until my last days and I will believe just like the thief on the cross. There are no guarantees of this happening. Death knows no age, knows no health status. We understand that. We hear stories of young people and old people alike, healthy and unhealthy alike, that die each and every day. We know most of us will not know the day of our death. We're not knowing when it's going to happen. It can happen in an instant. And I love the old Puritan quote in regards to this when it speaks of the thief next to the cross. It says, There is one case like this recorded in the scripture so that no one has to despair. But there is only one so that no one will presume. And I think that's such a wonderful truth. Because, yes, yeah, so there's possible, and we probably all of us can know of stories where someone came to believe in, believe in the Lord on their deathbed. Yes. Does it happen? Yes. But we don't want to wait till then, because we don't know. So let this be the day that you believe, if you have not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I close today with a quote that was placed on the Ligonier website after the passing of R.C. Sproul. In the over 50 years of teaching and preaching, countless messages, countless teaching, I taught at seminaries and preached in the pulpit, wrote numerous books and radio program, so much, so much that he had that he put out there. And yet, Ligonier Ministries, upon his death, chose to sum, summarize his entire ministry in a very succinct way. They just simply put out, God is holy and we are not. In between is the God-man, Jesus Christ, and his perfect work of obedience and his atoning death on the cross. That was their message. And that is the message that we preach. God is holy, and we are not. But we understand, and we're so thankful for the fact that we have the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross, that he is the intermediary, he is everything that we need him to be, and more. And he is the one that paved the way and made it possible for us to have salvation. And that's the message we preach. It's not a complicated or sophisticated message. It's a simple message. It's the same message. Same message that was preached hundreds, thousands of years ago. It's the same message that will be preached until the Lord returns. And that's the one that we bring to the world. So praise God for that.
So in light of this truth, this psalm, and all of Scripture, may we praise Him by the power of the Holy Spirit and live for His glory. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you once again for this opportunity to be gathered here together as your people. And Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the truths that are found in this psalm. What a wonderful psalm in just eight short verses, Lord. There is so much truth, Lord, that can be unpacked. And we thank you, Lord God, that you have moved in our lives and in, our, in everything that you have done for us, Lord. And we thank you so much for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord God, for all of us here, Lord, that are believers, Lord, that indeed we would keep short accounts with you, that we would quickly repent of the sins that we've committed against you, Lord, and then move in the right direction, Lord. And we pray also that for those perhaps that, that don't know you yet, Lord, that are either listening or perhaps even in this room, I pray that you would just let this be the day, Lord, where they would understand the, the depth and the, the depravity of their sin and their, the fact that their sin is a holy offense to you and that they would cry out just like the psalmist, Lord, and cry out for forgiveness, Lord, and that they would just be found, find that forgiveness, Lord, at the foot of the cross. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this time today. We thank you for all that are here this, this morning and this afternoon. And we just give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.